Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Several years before his death, I had an opportunity to meet Pistol Pete Maravich. Pete Maravich was a one-of-a-kind individual. After Christ came into his life, he was no longer the hot dog and the showman. He still had all the talents and all the gifts, but he was a humble man. He didn't try to impress you with himself. He wanted to talk about Jesus. Pete Maravich was one of those men who, when God saved him, God really got a hold of him, changed his life. About six months before Pete died, he went to a men's retreat. He had not been asked to speak at this retreat, but he saw a brochure on it, and he decided he wanted to go and wanted to learn some of the things that would be taught there, and so he just showed up by himself. Typically, when men go on retreat, they get some fellows to go with them, and they'll all gather together, and so a lot of people had shown up at this place from all over the country. And they decided before the conference started that night, several of them decided to play a pickup basketball game. Pete Maravich walked out on the court. Two guys decided to choose sides. And so everybody picked their players. And everybody kept passing over Pete Maravich because they didn't know who he was. They got all the way down to the end, and the last person left was Pete Maravich. And this guy looked at this older, skinny guy and said, well, come on, you can be on my team. By the way, what's your name? Pete Maravich. He said, you're not the Pete Maravich, are you? He said, yes, that's me. He said, I mean, the Pete Maravich that played at LSU that was the youngest guy inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame, that's me. Pete Maravich that wears the floppy socks. That's me. How in the world could guys who are interested in basketball have one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived standing within arm length of them and they miss him completely? I've got a better question for you. How could the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin study the scriptures, have memorized the first five books of the Bibles, been the keepers of the law, known all the prophecies that would lead up to Messiah, and Messiah be standing in the midst of them, and they miss him. Jesus Christ burst onto the scene. When he healed the leper, he sent him to the priest for one reason. The scripture said that Messiah would heal lepers. And so he wanted them to understand that Messiah had come. And yet there he stood in the midst of the ones who should have known him best. And they didn't know him at all. Why couldn't they pick up on who Jesus was? Why couldn't they recognize that this man was the one who fulfilled all the scriptures? And I think it is for that reason that Jesus Christ most favorite expression for the Pharisees was that they were hypocrites. The word Hebrew, the Hebrew word for hypocrite, means godless or lawless. 
Now, isn't it ironic that Jesus would choose a word that can be translated lawless for people who prided themselves on keeping the law? The Greek word means an actor, one who acts in a play. In Matthew 23, seven times, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. <laughs> Woe to those guys that couldn't figure out that Pete Maravich was on the court with them. Woe to the Pharisees and the scribes that they could not figure out that here stood Messiah, although they kept the law. Now, this is going to shake your tree a little bit, but I, you need to understand this. The Pharisees were considered the fundamentalist Christians of their day. They were the people who pounded the book and said, we believe the book. But they didn't believe the book. They believed their interpretation of the book. There's a big difference. Thus saith the Lord, plus a few things we add to it. That's what they believed. They couldn't stop with this is what God says, period. They had to interpret it and make their interpretation law along with the law. You see, they had the letter of the law down pat, but they did not have the spirit of the law. That's why Jesus referred to the Pharisees as blind guides. By the way, the Pharisees threw a lot more brickbats at Jesus than they did bouquets. Jesus Christ was on the receiving end of more mud from the religious establishment than he was medals. The religious establishment rejected Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with him. But I might add the other side of that coin is Jesus rejected the religious establishment. He didn't want anything to do with them because they were walking Bible encyclopedias and yet the one who personified truth, they rejected. William Coleman said that while they may have found Jesus intriguing, they could not find him enticing Many of them could have talked at length of their enthusiastic anticipation of the coming Messiah, yet as he walked past them, they drew the shades of their minds. In chapter 2, we find that the Pharisees are moving in on Jesus. They're beginning to criticize every move, every message, every miracle in the life of Jesus. Jesus may have been ministering at this point by almost a year. The Pharisees are closing in on him, and the first thing I want you to see is that they were criticizing his claim to authority over sin. Now look at verse 5, if you would. They were criticizing his claim to authority over sin. Verse 5, Jesus seeing their faith, that is the faith of the ones who lowered the man through the roof. They literally unroofed the roof. Seeing their faith said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Now notice, they have not said anything, they're just thinking. You ever been in a room and you sit around and you say something and you realize that there's body language and eye contact going on between people that you're talking to and you realize they're not receiving well what you just said? I don't look at me like that, just... I mean, you, you realize, boy, I, I have crossed a line with some of these folks, and they never have to say a word to you. You see, they were reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, you remember we talked in the message on healing about the fact that there are different reasons that people get sick, and one of the reasons that people get sick is because of sin. This man was sick because of sin in his life. Sin had led to sickness. That is not always the case. That's just one instance. But this man was sick, and the sin is not named. But Jesus says, the greatest miracle that I'm going to do today is not to heal this man so he can take his pallet and walk. The greatest miracle I'm going to do is forgive him of his sin. I'm going to free him and cleanse him of his sin. A British psychologist has said that a man's sense of forgiveness is the greatest healing force in the world. But there was a problem that day. There were some of the scribes there, a religious scouting party for the Sanhedrin. Maybe they had come back after Jesus had healed the leper and they said, you go check him out and see what's going on. And they didn't say a word. They were reasoning that way in their hearts. They were dialoguing in their hearts. They were coming to some conclusions in their heart. And Jesus discerned their hearts. Now, I want you to notice something. He said, they said, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. These Pharisees were not doubting Jesus. They had already in their hearts rejected Jesus. That's why we will come tonight to chapter 3 and see the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit tonight when you reject God's work in your life. They had rejected the work of Jesus. They didn't just doubt it. They rejected him. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And so Jesus gave them something to chew on. He said, all right, let me ask you a question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can check you out on that. I can walk up to you today and say your sins are forgiven, and you may not know whether they are or not. But if you're paralyzed and I walk up to you and say, rise and walk, and you get up, that's obvious and easy to document. So Jesus said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do both. Then you can't refute either one. I'll heal him and I'll forgive him. Now what Jesus is doing in verses 1 through 12, you can just mark it in big headlines. He's saying, I am Messiah. I'm it. I'm the one you've been looking for. Only God can forgive sin. You guys are exactly right. Only God can forgive sin, and you're looking at him. I'm Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of prophecy. I'm the one that can heal lepers. I'm the one that came to heal diseases. I'm the one that fulfilled all the promises and all the prophecies in the Bible. You are looking at him, and the Pharisees looked at him and said, we're going to lose our jobs. The ones who should have been the happiest to receive Jesus rejected him. They were fearful of losing the status quo because Jesus came to tell man that man's sins could be forgiven. Secondly, Jesus was criticized for his conduct and affection for sinners. Let's pick up in verse 15. And it came about after he was reclining at the table in his house. Now, his house refers 
Uh, Luke says he's in Matthew's house, Matthew the tax collector, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here was Jesus Christ deliberately associating with the wrong people. And of all things, he's eating at the home of an IRS agent. Oh, that's what he's doing. Caesar had his own IRS, and it was crooked. You could sign up and buy a franchise, kind of like franchising fast food. You could get a tax-gathering franchise, and you could have a certain region and a certain area, and after you collected what was due Caesar, everything else you could just take right off the top. It was all yours. It was yours to keep. It was a corrupt system. Men got wealthy in that system, and the Pharisees hated the tax gatherers. In fact, they set up some stipulations so that tax gatherers couldn't even come to church, so that they couldn't fellowship. And they did several things. The first thing they did is they refused to receive their gifts. If a tax gatherer came to church and said, I'd like to make a contribution to your church, they'd say, you can't do it. That tells you the Pharisees weren't Baptists. We'll take money from anybody. One of our men walked up to me today and said, Pastor, I just want to know if I can take a job that I was offered Thursday. I said, sure, why not? What is it? He said, I got a job offered to work with the Florida Lottery. I said, well, if it's over $20 million, it may be in God's will if you give it to the church. <laughs> I'm just joking, all right? <laughs> Some of you panicked. I mean, you just... <laughs> Oh, God, the preacher's been gone a week and he's liberal. <laughs> they refuse their gifts. Secondly, now, this is the religious establishment. They considered lying to a tax collector an act of righteousness. <laughs> In other words, if you just put all kind of false information down on your 1040 form, you're a godly person. That's what they were saying. If you can lie your way out of paying your taxes, you ought to do it. This was the religious establishment telling people you are righteous and godly if you lie about your income. Boy, now there's a sermon. We better go on from that one. Number three, they didn't believe that tax collectors could repent. It was not in their theology that a tax collector could come to a relationship with Jehovah God. And so when Jesus Christ called Matthew as one of his disciples a tax collector, he drove a key nail in his diplomatic coffin. He cut himself off by ministering to a group that they were told you can't have anything to do with. Yet these people were starving spiritually. They needed someone to love them and to care for them. And Jesus associated with them, and by doing it, disqualified himself as a representative of God in the eyes of the Pharisees. The only problem is he didn't qualify, disqualify himself in the eyes of God, the only one that matters. Associating with the wrong kind of people. You know, if I didn't know better, I think Jesus sometimes went out of his way to shock people. Do you think it was just a 
drawing of straws that Jesus chose a tax collector and a political zealot. You look at the group around Jesus, you wouldn't buy a house in their neighborhood. Biggest bunch of riffraff and low life you've ever seen in your life. Nobody's no count, no good, outcast of society, but Jesus called them to himself. He spent time with people that we don't want to spend time with. He associated with sinners. Here they were in Matthew's home listening to Jesus, being encouraged by Jesus. Jesus was willing, willing to rub himself up against the dying carcass of society and to say to them, I care about you. And notice what he says. He says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah, you're right. These guys are sick. And that's why I'm here. Because if they ever got any hope of getting well, it's going to take me to do it. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm the only hope these tax collectors have got. They need God. They need me. Jesus came to minister to people, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their background, regardless of what they looked like, regardless of what they smelled like. He demonstrated a word that the Pharisees couldn't understand, grace. Just grace. He loved people. He did not come to compliment self-righteousness. He came to convert sinners. Now, pick up in a second account where he has a little confrontation in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, and John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast. So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skin as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, Jesus uses this first illustration because he's trying to remind them of the imagery of the Old Testament that Israel and Jehovah God were married. There was a bond, there was a covenant, there was a bride and bridegroom relationship, and he was beginning the process of establishing his church where we, we would be the bride of Christ. What he was saying was, when we come together, it is not for a funeral, it's for a festival. My disciples don't fast now. There'll be a day when they fast, but this is not the day for the bridegroom is with them. I tell you what, folks, if Jesus came into our presence today, which he's already here, but if he physically manifested himself today, we wouldn't have a fast, we'd have a festival. We'd throw a party. I mean, it would be dinner on the ground, sure enough. We'd have a big one. Because when Jesus comes, it's not sackcloth, it's a robe that he gives us. And Jesus came and said, I came to introduce a new thing, not to try to patch up your old system. Now, here's what they were asking him. They were saying, Jesus, why, why can't you be like us? Why can't you follow our rules? Why can't you keep our customs? Why can't you be solemn and dry and dead as dust like we are? 
Jesus said, because the bridegroom's come. It's a festival. It's a party. I don't see many people get upset at weddings. Everybody at weddings seems to have a good time. Except the father of the bride who's writing the checks. Everybody else seems to be having a pretty good time. You know, we cry, but it's crying and tears of rejoicing. Jesus said, when I come, there will be rejoicing. Ray Stedman said, church people complain that men are out playing golf and boating on Sunday morning, but until the church recovers the excitement and joy of a wedding feast, they can't be blamed for not coming. Folks, some churches that you go to, it's not hard to figure out why God would rather be on a golf course or on the lake. It's not even hard to figure out why he doesn't want to just pull the covers over his head and go back to sleep because nothing's happening there anyway. Why get up and get dressed and get cleaned up to go to something that's not going on anyway? I mean, if the game's been canceled, you don't show up at the stadium. And if life's not there, why go? Jesus said, when I am present, there is life and there is joy and there's a festival. All this morning, we've heard music. It's been uplifting and encouraging us and inspiring us. Why? Because where Jesus is, it's a feast. Thirdly, there was criticism because of his companions and their attitude toward the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees were the moral policemen of the Sabbath. Boy, they worked on protecting the Sabbath. Verse 23, And it came about as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he gave it also, what, if you want to read in between the lines, to that ragtag bunch of soldiers that were with him. And he was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Seven times Jesus and the disciples butted heads over the Sabbath. Five times it was over healing. This one time it was over the picking of the grain. One time it was in response to a criticism. But there was no issue that riled the Pharisees more than violating the Sabbath. It flew them off the handle like nothing else. The book of Exodus says that you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now we understand that. But the Pharisees and Jesus had a totally different interpretation of that. Now, what Jesus was saying was that life is more sacred than law. You understand? Now, do you, you know what the New Testament says, don't you? The New Testament says that every day is the Lord's day. By the way, today's the Lord's day. Yesterday was the Sabbath. Did you remember yesterday and keep it holy? Ooh. Paul said in his writings that there are some people who think 
that you just got to keep one day holy. He said very emphatically under the inspiration of the Spirit, every day is to be kept holy unto God. That means that how we act on Friday night and on Saturday and on Tuesday morning and at lunch and at dinner and with our family is to be just as holy as how we act at church on Sunday. You see, our problem is not the old blue laws or anything like that. Our problem is we can't get Christians to act like Christians seven days a week. Jesus said, everything's holy. And he said, and by the way, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and since I made it, I think I know what I can eat on the Sabbath and what I can't. Now, would you not agree with me that if Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he probably knows what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath? Make sense? And he, the parallel passage on this is Matthew chapter 12, and he quotes three reasons why his disciples ate. And we won't take time to turn to the passage, but I just want you to see the three. First of all, he said in verses 3 and 4 that David did it. Well, David was a man after God's own heart. David did it. In verses 5 and 6, he said, By the way, you priests do it. You see, they'd set up a standard for everybody else, and then they had a different standard. And then he goes to the ultimate reason why he did it in verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 12, and he says, Hosea says that God desires compassion, not sacrifice. So why did Jesus defend the right to take grain on the Sabbath? Because it helped men and because he was Lord of the Sabbath. And that meant it was his grain to take. He could do whatever he wanted to. You see, Jesus understood that law without love is useless. The Pharisees knew how to direct traffic, but they didn't know how to love anybody. And so they criticized him. Inflexibility is the first cousin of being hard-hearted. If you and I become inflexible, then we've become related to those who are hard-hearted. Matthew Henry said, The Sabbath is a sacred and divine institution, but we must receive and embrace it as a privilege and benefit, not as a task and a drudgery. Folks, if I'm going to drown, I want to drown in deep water, not a mud hole. And too often the church has gotten caught up just like the nitpickers in chapter 2 of Mark, nitpicking little things. I saw him cutting his grass on Sunday. What, did you cut your grass on the Sabbath? If you cut your grass yesterday, you did. Shame on you. You ought to repent. I might not even be saved. And see how ridiculous that is? If you did any work in your yard yesterday, you did it on the Sabbath. Folks, do you see what Jesus is trying to say? Will you think with me? Jesus is saying you do everything as unto the Lord. You keep everything as unto the Lord in your life, and you can do yard work to the glory of God. Do you know that? Now, I personally don't believe that, but a lot of people do. <laughs> You see, we sometimes draw hard and fast lines where Jesus doesn't. Now, how do you 
deal with a pharisaical spirit. What are the characteristics of a pharisaical spirit? Well, there are two or three things. First of all, they criticize Christians who are forgiving. Pharisees never forgive, and they never forget. Now, these are things you and I have to watch in our lives because I'm going to tell you something. The Pharisees did not start out as bad men. Understand that. They evolved over a period of time into ungodly blind serpents who had the law but had none of the Spirit of God in them. They didn't start out as being against the will of God. They started out protecting the law and encouraging people to worship God. They just got off track. And you can get two degrees off track and you can take a compass that's two degrees off of being north and head toward the North Pole and you'll end out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Just two degrees off. They didn't intend to start this way. They just got this way. Pharisees won't forgive. They hold grudges. They're not forgiving. They'll never forget. You do something to a Pharisee and they'll never let you forget it. You can apologize. You can repent. You can weep. You can make restitution. You can do whatever you want to do. And they'll take every opportunity to tell somebody what you did to them. Secondly, Pharisees set boundaries that God never set. Pharisees set boundaries that God never set. Now let me just say something real quick right here. God deals with individuals. You understand? God deals with individuals. So what that means is, is that there are some people... Now, let me just use an illustration, all right? I'm just going to try to illustrate this. Hear what I say. Don't try to filter it through what you think I'm saying. There are some people in our church that do not own televisions because they believe that's wrong for them to do. And you know what? That's fine for them. There's some people in our church that own television, and all they watch is sports. You know what? That's okay for them. There's some people that own televisions, and all they watch is the Home Shopping Network with their MasterCard with them. I'm not sure that's okay. Folks, what I'm saying is the TV is not the issue. It's the person who's watching it that's the issue. That's why that little thing's got an on and off knob. And that's why God saved you and put His Holy Spirit inside of you so you'd have enough sense to listen to God and follow God and walk with God and know when to turn it off when it was violating your conscience, when it was moving you away from relationship to Jesus, and know when you can leave it on. Now, that doesn't mean that the people that don't have TVs are any more spiritual than the people that do, or vice versa. It means that God deals with individuals. And where we get in trouble is when we become pharisaical and say, everybody ought to not have TVs, or everybody ought to have TVs. I'll tell you something, folks. If everybody didn't have TVs, we wouldn't have people saved and people watching our television program every week. So they can't be all bad. I mean, we provide a ministry through television. So it can't be totally ungodly. Whew, okay. <laughs> they set boundaries where God doesn't set them. Never draw a line for somebody else's life that God has drawn for your life that's for you. 
because it may just be for you. Number three, they point fingers at Christians who live under grace. And that's really a spillover of number two. They point fingers at Christians who live under grace. They have no concept of love and forgiveness and freedom. Now, how do you survive Pharisee? Number one, you have the mind of a scholar. You have the mind of a scholar. In other words, you need to know the Word of God. You'll not know the Word of God by just sitting in a Sunday school class listening to somebody else teach it. You'll not know the Word of God by sitting in a worship service and listening to somebody else preach it. You need to know the Word of God for yourself so you know when the text is in context or when it's taken out of context. You need to know the Word of God so that somebody comes to you and says, God says so-and-so, you can say, Oh, you know, I've never seen that there. Could you show me where God says that? Where exactly is that in the Bible? You know, a lot of people that run around saying that God said can't find where God said it. You have to have the mind of a scholar. God gave us a mind and he told us to renew it. The battlefield for your life is in your mind. Satan plays war games in your mind. That's why you've got to have the mind of a scholar. Think on these things, Paul says. We want, we're supposed to use our mind. We don't put our mind in neutral when we become Christians. Secondly, we're to have the heart of a child. And that simply means you're to love everybody. The heart of a child. We stayed in a cabin this week while I was doing a youth camp, and, and we stayed in a cabin this week with a family that had twin, what were they, 10 months old? Twin 10-month-old. You know what those babies did? I could reach down and say, Hey, buddy, how you doing? He'd look up and smile. Uh, just slobber, you know, just going everywhere. <laughs> Let me pick him up. You know what? He didn't back away. He'd say, Wait a minute. I'm not sure I like you. You're too ugly to hold me. He just let me pick him up. Why? Because until a child learns differently, a child loves everybody. That's all they know how to do. You show a child affection, they're going to love you. You just look at them, they'll love you. Children very rarely turn their heads from anybody until they're taught to do that. You've got to have the heart of a child. I'll tell you what, folks, it's hard to keep the heart of a child. We live in a cynical, ungodly world. And somehow the church has still got to have a childlike heart. Thirdly, you've got to have the height of a rhinoceros. Because I'm going to tell you, you'll take some tough blows. If you live the life that Jesus tells you to live, you better have the hide of a rhinoceros. And the problem for us is, how do we toughen our hide without hardening our heart at the same time? How do we say toughen our hide and yet keep our heart tender toward God? Folks, the Christian life is not popular Living like Jesus is not easy. It's easier to just follow somebody else's list of do's and don'ts than it is to live by faith. But the reason it's not easy is because you have to trust God every day to do it, and that's why you ought to do it. I'm working on an article. That's dangerous. But I'm working on an article, and a, and a thought got my attention this week. 
and some people that listen to this, what I say in just a moment, are going to, you're going to take it and you're going to run the wrong direction with it, but I'm going to run that risk because I think it's a, it's a worthwhile thought. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and then live like you please. You understand what that means? You say, well, you don't stand up there in that pulpit and tell them to live like they want to. I didn't. I said, love God with everything you got, then live like you want to. You know why? Because when you love God with everything you've got, then you live like God wants you to live, which is what you want to do because you want to please Him because you love Him. So you live that way. Amen. Isn't that simple? So the only thing you've got to ask yourself in any given situation of life is in doing this, am I showing other people that I love God with everything I've got? And if in doing this or saying this or participating in this and somebody sees me, they say that person is exhibiting love for God with everything they've got, then do it and don't worry who criticizes you. Because I'm going to tell you something, folks. The only way you can avoid criticism is to be dead and then they're going to talk about you. So you might as well love God, keep your face toward heaven, keep a smile on your face, shake hands with everybody, love everybody, and keep on going because you're not going to please them all anyway. Jesus didn't do it, and you won't either. Get your mind right. Get your heart right. Get your hide tough. And love Jesus. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.